was uh, in terms of being a role model. So-and-so was my hero growing up. I wanted to be just like them. Emulate their character, be a great hockey star or whatever. But I looked up to them. I wanted to be like them. Uh, somebody who exhibits an admirable quality of courage or wisdom or greatness or perseverance. Something that we want to emulate. Someone we aspire to pattern our life after. All of these things are kind of included in the idea of a hero. And some of the images that come to our mind when we think of hero is, is the firefighter walking out of the burning building carrying the baby. You've all seen pictures like that after some great tragedy. Um, as a kid, the superhero, right? The one who has incredible powers and pursues justice for all and takes out the bad guys and they have strength and some superhuman ability. These are heroes. Now the Bible... The Bible uses a lot of terms and phrases when it talks about Jesus, and we are used to thinking in some of these terms and phrases about him. They, they come readily to our mind. Things like Savior, Redeemer, Shepherd, Son of God, Friend, King, Lord, Teacher. And today I want to add to that list the idea of hero, that Jesus is a hero, that's not a word that comes to our mind quickly, but it is fitting. And the Bible never uses the word hero. But as we consider Jesus as revealed by God's word, he is very much a hero. Right? When we were uh, chained in a cold and dark and dirty cell, who is it that crashed through the wall and came to our rescue? It was Jesus. When we're faced with certain destruction at the hands of some malevolent enemy, who comes in on his charger with his sword and does battle for us. It was Jesus. He is, he is very much our hero. Gentle shepherd? Absolutely. He is, in his own words, meek and lowly of heart. But he's also a warrior. He's also a champion. He is also a hero. And I just want to share with you this morning three uh, short texts of Scripture that don't, again, don't use the word hero, but describe what Jesus has done in terms that I think are heroic terms. And one of them is not the text that we've just had read. Um, I chose this text for the reading this morning because Jesus himself is speaking in terms of coming to the rescue, of crashing through the wall, right? He says, you know, if there's a strong man who has possessions, you can't just waltz into his house and walk out with him. What do you have to do? You have to break into his house, defeat the strong man, tie him up, render him, incapacitate him. Then you're free to plunder his house. And what was the context in which Jesus said that? The context of setting people free from demonic oppression. So I think that Jesus is talking about the strong man who has people in his possession. And Jesus breaks in, ties up the strong man and is able to plunder his house and release people. I think, so that's why I chose that text, even though I'm not preaching that text. Maybe someday I will. Maybe someday I will. But if you have your Bibles, I'm going to flip to three different passages today. And one of them is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Verses 14 and 15. And uh, just to set the context a little bit, the whole book of Hebrews is about the, the uh, 
I was going to say supremacy, that's not the right word, the superiority of Jesus. All of Hebrews is the fact that Jesus is better than angels, the law, Moses, Abraham, the temple. Okay, Jesus is greater than all of these things, better than angels. And in chapter 2, we read that, you know, after all, what Jesus, God didn't give to angels the work of salvation, but he gave it to Jesus, who became a man. And then in verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children, who are the children of God, the people of God, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that is flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver or free all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. In this chapter, you have Jesus who fully identifies with his brothers, with the people of God, with humanity. And he does that in order to, oh, and he, he fully experiences humanity, even to the point of giving up his life, even to the point of experiencing death. Jesus was fully human. And why does he do that? He does it in order to destroy the devil who has the power of death and through that to free all the people who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now death has been a reality in the human condition ever since Satan first showed up on the scene and said, you know what Eve, I know God said A, but I'm telling you not A, so you should believe me. And she did. And death came into the human experience. And we have feared death ever since. And I'm not sure that there is a culture on earth or in history that fears death more than the 21st century North American culture. It's really quite astonishing that we will deny, do everything in our power to defer it. Um, we do, we do, we're not willing to face it, not, often not even willing to talk about it. We fear death. To the point that I think we're enslaved by it. And our culture is very much chained up by the fear of death. You can picture us sort of, again, in a cell, chain, you know, chains wrapped around our arms and our legs, and the prison is the fear of death. And who is our, our prison warden? It is the devil. He's the one who has us chained in the fear of death. And what does Satan do? Or what does Jesus do? I'm sorry, he becomes one of us. And does not fear death. He experiences it for us. Didn't, didn't like it. He said to God, you know, if there's any other way to do this, but if it's your will, I'm willing to do it. And for the joy set before him, he endured it, died, and then rose, defeated death. Death no longer has any hold on him. And what does Romans say about us? What did we do? We died with him and were raised to life with him. And if, we've, if we were participants in his death, surely we are participants in his resurrection. And so what, what does that reality do to us, to the chains that bind us in our fear of death? They, 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 they fall off. We do not need to be chained by the fear of death anymore. Death no longer has, uh, it's lost its sting the scripture says. And I wonder if sometimes we as Christians, 
we can, we can speak truths like this and think, you know, theologically, that's true. I've always believed that. I don't have an issue with that. But do, do, we, know what it, do we know what it means that Jesus, again, crashed through the wall, tied up the strong man, defeated the devil who had us enslaved to the fear of death, and that we no longer need to be enslaved to that fear. Do we, do we know what that Do we understand the significance of the work that Jesus did? Is Jesus a hero or what? And I, I don't know if, if anyone of us here this morning fears death. I don't think we need to smile and say, come on, death, I can take it. Death is still the enemy. And we, and we rightly consider it as such. We don't embrace it. But it doesn't have this, and we don't like it. But it doesn't have the same hold on us that it has on those who do not know the reality of Christ, those who are without God and without hope in the world. There is a freedom. And so much of Christian history is littered with stories of people who who chose death because they didn't fear it. They laid down their lives for the sake of Christ because there was something bigger, something greater in their world than their own life. And they didn't fear laying down their lives for the sake of Christ. And one of the great things about the Christian experience is that since death comes to all of us, and it does and it will, we move, all of us are moving that direction one day at a time towards our own death, but we don't have to fear it. We don't have to try and turn and run the other direction, which is what our culture does. We can walk toward it with our hand firmly in the hand of Christ, and he says, you know what, I've been here before, <laughs> you'll, you'll be all right, and we don't fear it. What a thing, what a thing to be released from, the fear of death. And Christ, our hero, destroyed the devil and set us free from death. So if a hero comes in and rescues us from a burning building or from certain death, uh, what God, Christ has done is rescued us from the fear of death. It's an incredible thing. But that's not all that he has done. It's not all that he has done. I want to go as well with you to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and again, just reading kind of a single verse from there, but I'll give a little bit of context for it. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. And there we read, and I love the phrasing of the NIV, so I'm going to use that this morning. There we read that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he that is Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He made a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities and triumphed over them by the cross. And this, this paragraph is in the, language, uh, in the language of the cross. There's references to the cross throughout the whole paragraph that this comes from. Now, uh, if, if you remember and can picture the reality of the crucifixion of Christ, crucifixion was by its very nature a public humiliation. Uh, the, the criminals were crucified naked, put in a public place, usually by some kind of main road. 
Um, the idea being that crucifixion would be a deterrent to the public. So as many people that could see it uh, as possible, that would be great because then more people would think, oh, I don't want to go there. I'd better watch what I do. It was, it was the Roman authorities' way of sort of exercising control. So Jesus, crucified naked on a cross, hanging there, and all who passed by hurled insults at him, we read in the scriptures. So there he is, publicly humiliated, made a public spectacle of them, except this text reverses it, right? The powers of evil crucify Jesus, but who is making a public spectacle of whom? The crucified man is making a public spectacle of the forces who put him there. That his, his death, the cross, was a scene of battle in which he was the victor. He was the champion. And what this text in Colossians chapter 2 is talking about in this whole section from verse 6 and through verse 15 and actually beyond is the fact that um, the, the rulers and authorities who are the spiritual forces of evil, if you remember our walk through Ephesians, that the spiritual forces of evil point us towards the law of God and say, you dirty rat, you haven't even come close to that. God has said, you need to be like this. And look how far from that you are. You think God has any use for you at all? You couldn't keep the law for five minutes on your very best day. And the spiritual forces of evil are condemning forces. They point to the law and say, you don't measure up. God wants nothing to do with you. You are evil, stupid, lowbrow, immoral. And what this text, Colossians chapter 2 says, is... You know what? That's essentially true. But here's what Jesus did. He took all the penalty of the law, the debt that we've racked up by our failure to keep the law, and he took it on himself and, in essence, nailed it to the cross. It's been put to death and therefore has no, no bearing on the picture anymore. And so... When the spiritual forces of evil say, Ron, you think you're a child of God? This is perfection over here. You think you're perfect? You think you're any good? And Jesus on the cross makes Satan look stupid for doing that. <laughs> because Satan has no argument. The dead is taken care of. Satan's got nothing to point to. The power of the law is gone. And how did Jesus do that? By dying in our place on the cross and bearing the punishment that we deserved. Saving our life. Doing something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. It was a scene of battle on the cross. Where the forces of evil who hate God and try to get at him by getting at us were defeated once and for all and made a public spectacle of them. And we look to the cross. We don't see Jesus in all his humiliation. What we see is the defeat of Satan. The reality that the law has no power over us anymore. That the debt that we owe God, we don't anymore, in fact, owe God. 
because it's been paid, that we are free, considered innocent. The ground has been ripped out from under the forces of condemnation. That's what this text is about. That's what's been nailed to the cross. And Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, gave his life so that that could happen. Is he a hero or what? Now, that, that is obviously way bigger than we can even begin to think about because we have no real concept about the forces of evil and their power. Um, how great the forces of evil are. Because, you know, the truth is, if Satan showed up with 10% of his legion in all of their kind of infernal, whatever the opposite of glory is, it'd be pretty overwhelming for us. We really have no sense of the forces of evil that are out there. And so, by the same token, we don't really know what it means that Jesus single-handedly took them on won a stunning victory for us while we stood on the sidelines, helpless. But that's what happened. In this chapter 2, in Colossians a little bit earlier, it says that in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. In other words, obviously what we know as Christians, that God himself came to be not, not just like one of us, but even lower than one of us, a servant who suffered a humiliating death in our place. And by doing so, won the victory for us against the devil himself. Disarmed him, rendered him helpless and useless. There is a story in uh, in the Old Testament that I love. It's a vision from Zechariah that describes this perfectly. And uh, because it's in the Minor Prophets, I always have trouble finding it. Just listen, listen to this story. This is a vision that Zechariah the prophet has, which is a perfect picture. Um, it's almost like a dramatization of what we just read in Colossians chapter 2. This is the vision that the prophet has. Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed. Now what's the priestly garments? Precious stones, pure linen, etc. Here is the high priest standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So all the very best religion of the kind of the top religious guy, filthy garments, standing before God. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I, Zechariah, I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. Like, wait, wait, don't forget this, the prophet said. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. I love, I love the picture, and it's a picture of us. 
you know, standing before God in our priestly garments, the very best, <laughs> our very best conduct in religion, and it's filthy garments before God. And Satan is standing right there saying, ha! Even when they're trying to be religious to the best of their ability, look, they're filthy, aren't they? And the Lord says, essentially, shut up. The Lord rebuke you. You be quiet. You, take off the filthy garments. Put clean clothes on him. Clothe him in righteousness. An act of God. And what's the priest doing all this time? This. Nothing. He can't. He can't get rid of his filthiness himself. He can't clothe himself in righteousness himself. But who can? The Lord does it. And that's a picture of what Christ has done for us. Removed our filthy garments, clothed us in the very righteousness of Christ, and rendered useless the arguments of the evil one who would stand there and accuse us before God. He can't. Who is he that condemns? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Jesus on the cross, our hero, doing battle, disarming the enemy so that we can stand pure and righteous before God. He has rescued us from fear of death. He has also rescued us from the punishment of the law, the accusation of the evil one. One more scripture for us today. And this is sort of a, it's 1 John chapter 3, and this verse... <laughs> could take it out of context and say, you know what, this really is the umbrella verse for all that we've talked about today. But it's not. There is a kind of a specific context for this as well. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8, where the Apostle John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And what John is talking about in this section of Scripture is our own personal sin. Our own personal sin, our conduct, our character, our personal enmity toward God. Our own slavery to unrighteousness. And the reason Jesus appeared was to destroy that work. And what this whole section, and essentially what 1 John is about, is that because of Christ, no one needs to be enslaved to sin anymore. Nobody needs to go on sinning. Nobody needs to have a pattern of sin that just continues to be played out helplessly in our lives. That the child of God in fact, because of the work of God in Christ, is able to grow into holiness. That sin loses its grip on our lives, and we can actually find ourselves more free from sin than we were and than we are as we grow in Christ. If we abide in Christ, it says no one continues, nobody goes on sinning. And the phrase there has to do with slavery. We know that we continue to sin, right? We know that there are habits that show up in our lives, but we're not slaves to it anymore. We are not helpless in the face of sin anymore. And that's what Romans chapter 6 is also about, that we've 
been buried with Christ, raised to new life, therefore put to death your sinful nature, become slaves instead to unrighteousness, become slaves to holiness. And that was the work of the devil in our lives, our slavery to sin. Again, the chains of death, the chains of sin, the same chains. But the reason Jesus came was to destroy that work. And we, in fact, can choose not to sin in any particular moment, right? It's true. It's true. Am I saying that we should expect that, oh yeah, from now on we'll be perfect in all that we do? No, we know by experience that we're not. But we have a heightened awareness of the choices that we make. And God reveals things to us and says, you do not have to be a slave to sin anymore. And if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, if he has taken up residence in you, I trust that you see that in the last year, sin does not have the grip on you that it used to have. That you have grown in holiness in this area or this area. It's incredible truth. It's an incredible truth. What is, human what is human history? The reality of a race of people enslaved to sin, unable not to sin. Nobody seeks God. Nobody pursues God. There's no good in us. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work and let his own life take up residence in us and begin to grow us in holiness. I love that. I love that. Jesus has set us free from sin. We sing it. We say it. He has set us free from sin. We know what that means. So the idea of Jesus as a hero, shepherd, friend, sacrifice, redeemer, absolutely. But what has he really done? He has set us free from the one who holds us enslaved by a fear of death. He has set us free from condemnation. Free from the punishment of the law. He has set us free from sin and its hold upon us, which we could not do ourselves. It's what a hero does, and that's what Jesus has done. And again, as I said right at the very beginning, all of us, every single one of us, were chained in a cold, wet cell, dark, thick brick, no door. And Jesus came and crashed through the wall and broke the chains and carried us and brought us to freedom, brought us to a place of safety. That is what he has done. Jesus is my hero. He has rescued me at great danger to himself because he died. He is my hero. He is my role model. I love his courage, his bravery. I love his perseverance to see the job done. I love his commitment to me and to us. I want to be like him. He is my role model. I aspire to him. Jesus, our hero. I'm going to say amen now and pray. And then I'm going to ask us together. I'm going to ask you to share how the person and work of Christ has been meaningful to you in your life. Either generally or if there's a certain a certain occasion where you think, you know what, Jesus was real in this way and that made all the difference. And we'll share together and we will pray and worship him together. And then we will sing and continue our Lord's day. So let me pray.